If you would, our scripture today is from John chapter 9. And we're going to look at the first 38 verses. A great story from the New Testament. Been told over and over throughout the ages. It's a favorite story of a lot of people. But it's about a man born blind who receives a sight. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sin, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with his clay. And he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is this not he who sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. He said, I am he. Therefore they said to him, How were your eyes opened? He answered and said, A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received sight. Then they said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought him, who formerly was blind, to the Pharisees. Now it was Sabbath, and when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he was able to receive his sight. He said to them, He put clay in my eyes, and I washed, and now I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God. Because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. They said to the blind man again, What do you say about him because he opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe him concerning him that he had been blind and received a sight, until they called the parents of whom he had received a sight. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he see now? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age, ask him. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed 
that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. Then they said to him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciple. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. The man answered him and said to them, Why, this is a marvelous thing, that you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, You were completely born into sin, and are you teaching us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Did you see what happened? Did you see what happened? Were you there? Why are you trying to hide it? It happened. It started out like any other day. I was out in the streets of Jerusalem, like I always am. Oh, come on now. Don't any of you be so judgmental or shocked by this. There isn't really any other way for a blind man to get food or get some money. And there's plenty of us out there trying to do this. All we're hoping for is just a little bit of charity. You'll find us everywhere in Jerusalem, along the doors, the doors, the doorposts, along the steps, anywhere we can fit in a crack. We're always being kicked and cursed at by the merchants with their carts. It's just how it is after all. Of course, I heard of the rabbi called Jesus. All kinds of stories were circulating about him. Some said he was demon-possessed and a Samaritan. Some even said he was the son of God. I have no way of knowing. I never met this man. Never met him. I could hardly even imagine what he looked like since I couldn't see. I couldn't imagine he would ever crouch down to someone like me either. Especially when I'm laying there, sitting there among the rubbish and the dogs that are also begging for scraps. 
But the commotion and the bustle all around me meant that he was coming near. There was a buzz and a chatter. All kinds of opinions being loudly cast. Sometimes it was heatedly. I could hear people arguing. The noise grew louder and louder until I reckoned that Jesus was getting close. Almost within touching distance. Perhaps I could say spinning distance. That's the way people often let me know how close they were to me. And then Jesus stopped. I may have been blind, but I could always sense when someone was near me. My first reaction was to crawl away under the nearest cart. Especially when I heard his disciples say to him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Boy, as if I heard that question over a thousand times in my life. I don't know what's, what, what it's about, these religious types, but whenever they get near me, they seem to treat me like a theological problem rather than a human being. If I had a shekel for every time they talked about whether it was my sin or my parents that led to my disability, I would be very rich by now, but still blind. I was already geared for another usual discussion over my head. I imagined some learned debate about the evils of the world, and then when the point was made, the crowds would move on away from me. But this rabbi said something completely different that no one else had ever said. He said loudly that everyone could hear. He said this, Neither this man nor his parents sin, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Now my ears pricked at this point. This was a, a completely new approach to my problem. He said some other things as well, but I didn't really understand them. Something about doing the work of, of him who sent me. Something about being uh, the light of the world. I have always been in the dark. I didn't understand him being the light when I knew nothing about what light was. I was so busy just trying to make sense of the words he was saying. Here was someone who didn't treat me for the first time in my life as a sinner. Who believed God was actually interested, no, cared about me. Nobody ever treated or said that to me before. And then, this Jesus, he spit. Not at me, but on the ground. I couldn't work out at first what he was doing. Usually the spit hit me in the face. But he touched me. And I could feel this warm, sticky mud on my eyes. And there was such a, a love and gentleness in his voice. And he said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. 
I honestly didn't know what this person Jesus was doing. But for some reason, because how he treated me, I felt I could trust him. That I could trust him. I couldn't even trust my parents. And if he said go, why should I argue? So I slipped away from the crowd as fast and as well as I could. I didn't want to be gawked at by everyone as if I was some exhibitor freak show. Fortunately, it seemed like the people wanted to keep following Jesus. So I was able to lose the people that were there in the narrow street heading down to the pool. I found my way down the slope into the valley until I reached the pool just inside the city gate, but I made it. As usual, it was a busy, bustling place, so I bet nobody there paid any attention to me as I dipped my hands into the cool, refreshing water. I kept them to my face and washed away the mud. What was I really expecting? Why did I really go through all this to get down there to do this? I didn't really know. But as I lowered my hands, praise God, I was suddenly aware of a light flooding in my vision. Light. Something I never knew. Something I never experienced. But now knew what light was. I, I blinked for several minutes. And then I got used to the fact that I could see. I saw a child there. I saw a lady over there. I could see. I really could. I could see the men standing around me. I could make out the details of everyone's faces, the texture of their clothes, the roughness of their hands, the dust on their sandals. My life had suddenly reached a new dimension. I never thought possible before. This Jesus, this man who said he was God, sent from heaven, healed me. And I thought that would be the end of my story. I didn't have to go back out into the streets to beg. So I went home. I wanted to tell everyone the good news. My parents were out at the time, but I went and found as many as the neighbors that I could. After all, I've, I've known most of them since I was a little boy. Even though I couldn't see them, I could talk to them and listen to them and feel their touch. I knew how they spoke. I knew how they smelt. But now... I wanted to really see them. I wanted to really see them. I wanted to see their skin. I wanted to watch the joy leap in their eyes. To watch their faces glow as they saw me and saw what happened that I could see. Would they throw a party for me? Would they be so excited that, that they would hold me up and carry me around and, and, and cheer and, and holler and, 
and give praise to God. Boy, how I looked at joining in on this. But the reaction was kind of weird. Very, very soon, some of them had gathered around me. And while I was the center of attention, they weren't exactly talking with me, but rather about me. They gave me funny sideways glances, and they began to talk to each other. Some said, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg like a dog for a bone? I felt like waving my arms and shouting to them, yes, hello, of course it's me. But I stopped myself just in time. It wouldn't have done any good anyways. I just watched. I saw for the first time with my eyes how people really were. An expression people give when they're angry or when they don't trust or they don't believe. I saw the look in the faces of people who thought I was an imposter, a confidence trickster. And yet I saw the hope in some who wanted to believe but couldn't quite work out what happened. I did my best to tell them, of course, the man that they called Jesus made some mud from the dirt in his spit, put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Pole of Siloam and wash. And so I washed, and now I can see. As far as I was concerned, the facts spoke for themselves, but not for my neighbors. The doubters turned to me and demanded to know where this Jesus was. And of course, I couldn't say. But why did Jesus have to answer them anyway? He had healed me. I was proof. And yet, I could clearly see we weren't getting anywhere. What I thought would be a celebration was fastly turning into an exercise in suspicion and cynicism. I was about to ask, where do we go from here? When an elderly man who lived across the street, said, People, quit talking to them. We need to now take them to the Pharisees. And on that point, every person agreed. So next, I was dragged in front of the teachers of the law. And you know what I did, don't you? I told my story once again. Jesus took some, some dirt, spit in the dirt, put it on my eyes, told me to wash in the pool of Siloam. I did, and I could see. Again, can you believe it? A complete lack of unbelief. Oh, did I mention that this was all done on the Sabbath? It was no big deal to me. I was glad it was on the Sabbath. I was just glad to be healed. Come on, I was blind since birth. That was the best Sabbath I ever had. I mean, when you're in the gutter, one day is like any other. But the Pharisees had other ideas. They were angry. They were angry. Apparently, they knew all about this Jesus 
And most of them had already made their minds up about him. One of them spoke up and sent a solemn, dreary voice. This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. He had no right to heal you on a religious day as this. Then there was a general murmur of approval of what he said until someone asked the very question I've been thinking. How can a sinner do such miraculous signs as this Jesus? And so once more, I found myself, guess what? Surrounded by not of people, not so much talking with me, but talking about me. I have to tell you, I felt like I was a piece of evidence in some big trial. In the end, though, I think they remembered I was still there. One of the Pharisees looked at me straight in the eye and asked me who I thought Jesus was. And for the first time in my life, I looked straight back and said, He is a prophet. Maybe I was seeing too well because the argument flared up again as to whether I really was the same person who had been born blind. Now they're trying to say, it really isn't me, but a double. That's when they went and found my parents and brought them in before the Pharisees. Now remember, I hadn't had any chance or time to talk to my parents before this. As my mother was escorted into the room, she caught sight of me. I could see for a brief moment the joy and happiness flicker across her face. I mean, she's my mother. What would you expect? But then she and my father realized exactly where they were. Before the middle of the most powerful religious authorities in the country. And their expression soon turned into one of terror. They were afraid. They were afraid they would be banished from the synagogue, made an example of for being someone who fell in league with Jesus. Then the teachers, these Pharisees, pointed me directly and said, Is this your son? Is this the one you say was blind? And if it is, how is it he can see? Very slowly, my parents' gaze shifted from them to me. There was a pause. They looked down the ground. I could tell they were both nervous. Then they looked up just a little bit, and hesitantly and very quietly they said this, We know he is our son, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He can speak for himself. And with that, they led him away again. I think my mother tried to turn and look at me one more time, but no one gave her the opportunity. So in the end, it was just me, a poor beggar, 
with nothing but a story of being healed. I expected they thought it was going to be a pushover. They had already decided that Jesus was a sinner, a rebel, a heretic, a no good for nothing. But I wasn't going to take that lying down. I still remembered the warmth of his voice. I remembered the gentleness of his touch. I knew I had been in the presence of someone extraordinary, extraordinary and special. Someone who didn't deserve to be written off this way. I won't go into all the details of the argument that took place, but suffice it to say, it ended when I said this. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. At which point, I felt the full, full brunt and force of their anger as two burly men grabbed me by the shoulders and quite brutally and physically threw me outside. And I just heard the, their parting shot. You're steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us, you beggar. For a moment, I wanted to go back inside and ask them if they had a monopoly on goodness and truth. For the reality suddenly hit me. I was my own. I wasn't sure I had anywhere to go. Would my parents welcome me back? What about the reaction of the neighbors? And how, from now on, would I earn a living? I began to wander the streets, trying to make sense of all that happened. It had been a long and confusing day, and I couldn't tell what tomorrow would bring. All I knew that I would, wouldn't be going back out on the street to beg ever again. So now what? I must have been pretty lost in my thoughts because I didn't know someone came up to me until he placed his hand on my shoulder. I looked up, but I already knew who he was by the touch. Having been blind, I could always recognize someone by their touch. And no one had ever had such a warm and tender touch as Jesus. And there he was, again looking straight at me. I began right then and there to really understand who Jesus was. Jesus must have been reading my thoughts because when he spoke, the first thing asked was, do you believe in the Son of Man? I think I knew the answer already, but I just wanted to make sure, who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. And of course, Jesus told me, and he did it with the most loving smile that I have ever seen in anyone's face. And I've seen quite a few faces up to now. Then I knelt before him, not crouching toward him as a blind beggar in the marketplace, but bowed down before him as a worshiper, worshiping as a disciple before my Savior. There was nothing more to be said then, Lord, I believe. I believe. 
whatever else my life would involve, it would from now on be based on following and serving Jesus. This Jesus, whatever the cost. As you might imagine, this Sabbath, this Sabbath day, hmm, changed my world completely. And as I've looked back over all that has happened, I've often thought about what it means to be blind. I'm so aware that so many faces of my friends are still in the street. They are still blind. They are still begging. Although we do try and help them as much as we can. But I ask myself, is being blind a greater disability than not seeing who Jesus is? Isn't it worse to be blinded by suspicion like my neighbors or fear like my parents or anger like the Pharisees? I reckon they're, they're really the ones still stumbling and blind, walking in darkness, but not me anymore. That's why day by day I'm still praying for them, praying that they will stop resisting the light that they could have in this Jesus who has changed my life so much. Jesus wants to shine in their hearts. Jesus wants to be their light. But that's enough of my story this morning. What about your story? Have you found the light of Christ in your life? Are you still resisting him? Yes, I I know from my own experience that you lose everything from letting Jesus into your heart. But the moment Jesus healed me, I lost my friends, my family, my security. But I can tell you that's all nothing compared to knowing Jesus as my Lord. And I can only hope, dear friends, that this is as true for you as it is for me. Thank you, Diane. In 1973, I, I was uh, in Boy Scouts, and and I got a chance to go <clears throat> to Philmont, Philmont Scout Ranch in New Mexico. And I don't know if anyone knows anything about Philmont. It's the largest private camp in the in the world. It's 250 square miles. It it uh, it takes over and encompasses uh, the northeast section of the uh, Rocky Mountains, and uh, the part of the Rocky Mountain Range in this Philmont Scout Ranch is called the Blood of Christ part of the Rocky Mountains or or uh, Cristo Mountain Range, and and this uh, range of Philmont in this 250 square miles. Groups of older scouts go for 10-day trips. You, you take your backpack and you carry your bedding, your food, your cooking stoves if you want, and all your equipment, and you're gone for 10 days. Whatever you have, that's what you have. And it's rugged. I went in 1973 for my first time, and I wasn't allowed to go. Uh, kind of embarrassed to admit this, but we, we lied on my application so I could go because I couldn't pass a physical. But up here I thought I could. And so uh, so I went to Philmont. 
And I was in a crew with, with 14 people, 12 teenagers like myself, but probably not as tough and good looking as me, but, um, and, and two adults. And, and for six months before you go, I didn't know these guys, so we got to know each other. We'd go hiking through the National Park and practice with our packs and, and getting it all together. So when we're out there, we're prepared. Nothing can prepare you for 10 days in the Rocky Mountains. And so we took uh, this, uh, we picked our itinerary, and we picked a really tough 10-day trip, which later we never do again. But every day we, we probably hiked at least 8 to 10 miles. And it starts off base camp at 6,000 feet. Does it mean how high 6,000 feet is? That's the level of the Denver Broncos stadium. And other football teams hate to play there, right? Because the air is so thin. Well, at Philmont, that's the beginning. It goes all the way up to almost 15,000 feet. And so we go off and we're hiking and backpacking. And, and uh, I, I tell you, I'm wearing a back brace at the time. And I can take this back brace off to take showers and baths, but that's it. And I have a heavy pack that's one-fifth of my body weight on my pack, on my back, but it's really laying on my brace. And so my brace is digging in my, you see how, how much weight I have? Well, I was skinnier than this as a kid. And I had, uh, this brace was just digging in my hips. My, I had open wounds. And so before I went, my dad and I found this stuff called moleskin that people put on their feet, like for corns or whatever. And we bought like 50 packs of this stuff. And I just kept, every time I broke out in the blisters, I just put more foam pad up. And one day, maybe four days of backpacking in 80 to 90 degree temperature, and it's pure sun every day. And, uh, you know, all these guys are, are uh, past puberty, so we stink. And no chance to take a shower yet. And we get, we, we're, we're going to climb on the fifth day this high mountain of 4,881 feet, second highest mountain in New Mexico called Mount Baldy. You know why it's called Mount Baldy? There ain't nothing at the top. It's bald. And so we got down to the bottom of the mountain, and we could see that. That's where we sleep. We eat lunch, and we're going to sleep that night and go in the morning. And so we eat lunch, and, and dinner's like at 4 o'clock. You go to bed before the sun even goes down because we, we get up before dark, I mean before light. But I noticed in the map there's a shower at a little bit higher of the base of the mountain, an old gold mining camp, and the shower still worked, they said. So after lunch, I said, anybody want to go take a shower? It was only two miles up the mountain to the, to the defunct town. Nobody wanted to go with me. I knew you're never supposed to go alone. I knew this. Always travel in threes. One to stay with the person who gets hurt, one to go get help. But I go by myself, nobody want to go. I get to the shower and I realize not many people take a shower there because it's just a big old water boiler and the water comes from the top of the mountain from snowfall so it's ice cold and you've got to build a fire in this boiler to get the water hot enough to take a shower. I'm there for hours trying to take my shower. Now, of course, you only have like one sweat jacket, one sweater, one rain jacket, you know, because you only have so much weight. So I take my shower and I realize, ooh, ooh, 
I'm at the second highest mountain in New Mexico. The sun's about ready to go over the mountain. I just realized, wow, it's suddenly cold. And the sun disappeared over the mountain. It went from day to night like that. My hair is still wet. I didn't tell you my towel because you, you worry so much about weight. Your toothbrush, right? You want to cut so much weight, you cut your toothbrush in half. So you have this much in your mouth, right? Your soap, you take a little bar of soap because you don't want to waste even that weight. And so my towel's only like this big for the six foot four body. I have like a little towel like this. And so I'm trying to dry off and didn't do a very good job. And so now it's only been a two mile walk and it's easy, just straight up to the thing and back. And I tell you about the flashlight you carry in your backpacking? You go to bed before dark, so the only flashlight you have is a little pen light to look in your tent. Because you go to bed at night. It's too dangerous going anywhere at night. That's all I have them with me. So I start walking down the trail. Wow. Looks different going down than coming up. I can't find what trail I go to take off. I, I don't know if I'm on the right trail now. I know if I'm on the trail. And I start to panic, of course. And I'm trying to stay calm, but I actually have ice chunks in my hair because it's wet and it's frozen. And I'm shaking. I'm on hyper, what do they call that thing? I mean, I'm, 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 my body temperature is going down fast. And, and I realize I'm going to die. I really felt I was going to die. And I don't know what to do. I mean, there's no one, there's no campsites. It's like, it, Within 10 miles, there's nobody. And I can't even find my guys, let alone anybody else. It's in the mountains. There's no help. And I'm trying to find the camp. And I'm praying to the Lord, Lord, show me a light. Help me with something. I knew they were all in bed because we all go to bed in the dark. There's no stars that night. And in New Mexico, in the mountains, stars come. It's just like daylight when the stars are out. It's beautiful. No stars. Can't find my way home. It's pitch dark. And I'm panicked. I'm scared. I don't know what to do. So I prayed. I kept praying. Kept taking little steps. Shaking so bad. And I realized I'm crying now. A grown teenager crying. I given a pope. And then I saw the light. Just like it brings it back. It's 1973, but it comes right back. But I saw the light. For the first and only time in a 10-day trip, three of the guys in my crew, for whatever reason, didn't want to go to bed that early. So they made a campfire. And that's the light I saw. And I realized I never would have found the campsite. Because they're not marked campsites. They're just places you pitch your tents. And there they were with a campfire. And I followed the light. And I realized I wasn't on any trail. I was just rocking, walking on rocks and tripping over shrubs. But I made it back. And, and that's why I like so much the story of the blind man. Because every one of us spends so much of our time walking around like we're blind. 
If that light wouldn't have been there that night, I would have died as a teenager. That light saved me. And the light of Jesus has even a greater saving power. Because that's an eternal light. That's a forever life-giving light. And if you don't know that light, or maybe you're in a place where you've walked away from that light, you're not, you're not in that light anymore, or you've never known that light. These altars are open just to come back and say, Jesus, I, I want you to be my light. I've, I've got away from you. I'm not really in your light like I should be. He wants to be our light. He wants to guide us. He wants to direct us. But he won't force anyone to do that. He'll let you take your own little flashlight. They'll give you a little bit of sight. And he'll let you fumble and trip up and, and have a lot of heartaches. But he'll offer you his big, huge light beam of life and hope and eternity. You just have to ask. So praise team, come up. The altar is open.